Uh, this morning, uh, Jacob Haley is up. He's going to be teaching on peace. And Jacob is headed into his senior year at Liberty. Just confirming, making sure I've got that right. Pretty sure that that's, that's right. He's interested in seminary and some form of ministry in the future. So uh, we roped him in, and he agreed, to, uh, he agreed to teach this summer. So thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, and we're thankful uh, just for your, your work in our lives. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful for your word being taught here. Uh, we're thankful to be able to sing to you, boast in you, um, exalt in you. And we're thankful just to uh, love each other and be able to be a family here at the church. And uh, we pray even today that through the ministry of your people, um, as we gather, that you would deepen our love for each other, that our love would abound, um, that you would deepen our joy, um, our peace, as we're going to hear about, and that uh, it all would just redound to your glory. And I pray for Jacob. I pray that you would uh, just calm his heart and um, help him to, to teach us with clarity and conviction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Can you guys hear me? Right, perfect. So, yeah, I hope you guys are all having a great Memorial Day weekend. As Clay said, I'll be preaching on the fruit of the spirit of peace. So if you'll turn with me in your personal copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 5. So a funny story. I actually, um, the, this is the second version of the schedule. I wasn't actually supposed to preach on peace the first time. The, I was actually supposed to preach on gentleness. And so when I got gentleness, I was like, oh, man, I can't preach a sermon on gentleness. And then we rearranged the schedule, and then I got a sermon on peace. And I said, oh, man, I can't preach a sermon on peace. And then I actually started to go through all the different fruits of the Spirit, and I was like, man, I don't know which of these I actually could preach on. So I stand before you not as someone who has already obtained it or have already been made perfect, as Paul had said, but as a fellow saint who is being conformed into the image of Christ. And thankfully, um, even though I haven't already made it there, I still have God's word. God's word is sufficient, and it speaks to all things. So hopefully you found your way to Galatians chapter 5. So we'll go ahead and read verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this morning, we'll see that peace has two different dimensions to it. First, there's like an individual dimension to peace, and that's like peace, like a sort of internal or like inner peace. And then second, there's going to be an external or a corporate understanding to peace. So we'll call the first one peace in the individual. The second we'll call peace in the church. And then right at the end, we'll kind of broaden out a little bit to see how God's plan for peace in the church fits in God's plan for peace in the entire world. And so we'll call that peace in the cosmos. So we'll start just with the first aspect of peace in the individual. And this isn't the primary meaning that Paul is driving at in Galatians chapter 5, but nevertheless, I do think it is one of them. So we'll just start there, and if you'll turn with me, Um, to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15. Just to give you guys a heads up, we will be in a couple of different places this morning. So I tried to boil it down to the important ones, but we'll be hopping a little bit around. 
So Romans chapter 15, look at verse 13 right there. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So I think I can make a case this morning from Romans 15 for two things. I think I can make the case that one, this peace is internal, and then two, that this internal peace is the same peace that Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter, in Galatians chapter 5. So look with me. Look how we gain this, this peace. We gain this peace in verse 13 as the God of hope fills us with all joy and peace in believing. So this idea of filling kind of communicates the idea of it's something that's inside of us, like an internal or inner type of peace. And then second, Paul says, um, with all joy and peace in believing. So joy is a sort of like internal or inner emotion. And the fact that Paul speaks of joy and peace so closely together communicates the idea that he's probably thinking of an inner type of peace. And then I think the second point that I want to make is that this peace in Romans chapter 15, this inner peace, is the same peace that Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter 5. So look how we gain this peace. Um, And we gain this peace as the God of hope fills us. Or in the second half of verse 13, it's connected with the Holy Spirit's work so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So I think we can draw the conclusion that this peace is something that's produced by God and therefore similar to what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5. And with this idea of inner peace in mind, let's try to flesh it out a little bit. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, the passage on inner peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5, actually starting in verse 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I think initially, one of the first things that we can get from this passage about kind of unfolding this definition of biblical peace is that of this inner peace, is that this inner peace is the opposite of anxiety. Like in verse 6, there's do not be anxious about anything, and then verse 7, and the peace of God. So those two, inner peace and anxiety, are contrasted. And more than that, it seems that this inner peace is like a quiet confidence in the Lord. It's like the feeling when a load is taken off your back because of trust in the sovereign God. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, the Lord is at hand. And then there's a semicolon. And the, there's, there isn't any punctuation, punctuation in the Greek New Testament, so the ESV translators made the decision to put a semicolon there that kind of links those two sentences. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything together. I think that that's the right decision. I think that those two ideas belong together. Because the flow of the text is like, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is right here. Therefore, do not be anxious. So this phrase, the Lord is near, refers to 
It's used in James chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, as like God as a judge. So James will write, the Lord is at hand. And then in the very next verse, he'll kind of rephrase that as, um, the judge is at the door. It shows that this sovereign God, the sovereign God who will establish justice in the day of the Lord, he's right there. He's present. In Philippians chapter 4, he's, he's one who hears our prayers, all of our prayers and our supplications. But notice that this text doesn't actually promise that God will answer any of our prayers. He says, let your requests be made known to God, and then the answer is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Instead, Paul uses an imperative, right? Do not be anxious about anything. It's not as if when we present our request that God is going to mold the world according to what we want. Instead, it's this truth of the Lord being at hand that we have to mold our heart into to have our trust in the sovereign God. You might say, I don't know why, but sometimes it feels like we, have, we come up with all these different excuses why it's okay to be anxious. Like, oh man, I have student loans. Well, I mean, the Lord is at hand. Is he not? Or, I don't know, the market's crashing, right? And I can't find a job with this degree that I just got. The Lord is at hand. Or sometimes it might be serious, like, hey, my mom is sick, and we, we can't pay the bills. I'd say, brother, the Lord is at hand. It's, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy. It's not always going to make sense. It's the peace that passes understanding. But nevertheless, it's still a peace that we have to cultivate. And it's, I think the reason what makes peace so hard to cultivate is because when we get bombarded with like worry or like all these worldly distractions, it seems that God's providential care just seems to slip out the back of our mind. So I'd encourage you, like, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen in, when the bad times are coming. So I think the solution to that, and what I would encourage you guys this morning, is that begin to think things through now biblically. Like, process things through now biblically, like in the providential care of God. Like, if you hit like a green stoplight, think through God's hands. So that way, when a tornado comes, you can know that like God is there keeping you safe in the midst of the tornado. And then I think it will eventually become automatic. Or maybe you do know that God is in control. But that doesn't keep you from being racked with worry and anxiety. I mean, it's, it's hard to cultivate this peace. I think the, the switch there is that this peace is really trust and confidence. It's really faith in the sovereign God for, is he who he really says he is? So we have to take this truth of the Lord being at hand, the Lord's providential care, the loving Father's concern for his children, and bend our hearts into that truth. It's not going to feel easy. It's not. It's okay to feel pain. But the point is to move our hearts to confidence in Christ. And if that's hard for you, I'd encourage you to go to the Psalms. Like, pray how David prays. Pray how the Psalms pray. Like, listen to Psalm 13. This is what David says. Like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? Like, he's there. He's pouring out his heart to God. But he also says, 
but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But see, I don't think that this inner peace can't be everything. Like this inner peace that we have is rooted in and it grows out of a real peace that happened. Like a peace that's true regardless of our feelings. Like an objective peace. Like think about it. The reason why we can have this inner peace is because we can have confidence in the Lord. But why can we have confidence in the Lord? Think about Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This inner peace is rooted in this objective peace. But this objective peace is something that's just bigger than us. It's it's bigger than just my confidence in the fact that I have peace with God. Listen again to Romans 5. We have peace with God. It's pointing to something bigger. To peace in the entire body of Christ. To peace in the church. So we come now to our second dimension, peace in the church. And so to fully flesh this out, turn with me in your personal copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11. We'll start in verse 11. So verses 11 through 22 come on the heels of verses 1 through 10, where Paul has already talked about salvation as God has made people alive in Christ Jesus. And then starting in verse 11, Paul takes this theme of salvation and he applies it specifically to the Jew-Gentile schism. Now this Jew-Gentile schism was a fierce divide. It's something that honestly might be comparable to like the racial tensions in the 1800s and the 1900s. Like in Acts, there's this one story in Acts where, you know, like Paul's going around and preaching and he, he goes into the temple and he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, that call causes like an uproar. And so the uproar begins to turn into a riot and all these Roman soldiers rush in to quell the crowds. And like in the midst of all this, Paul is given an opportunity to preach. So he begins to preach the gospel. And he starts with his testimony and he shares of his life in Judaism and how Christ appeared to him. And then he gets to his commission. This is what he says. And he, that's God, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Like Paul's commissioning as an apostle to the Gentiles to preach the message of salvation to them implies that the Jews and the Gentiles can come together. And listen to the reaction that this brings. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This Jew-Gentile hostility was so strong that they were willing to kill someone who was to preach a gospel of reconciliation. And the reason behind this hostility is in verses 11 through 12, because there are real objective barriers to this community. In verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Guys, there's no getting around any of these signs. Like circumcision, like for us, that's probably not a big marker of division. But in a time when there were public bathrooms, you could pretty easily tell who was a Jew and who was a Gentile. Think about Jewish cleanliness laws. Like, you couldn't go over to a Gentile's house. Like, you couldn't share a dinner with him. Like, you couldn't socialize with him. And, like, if you followed these Jewish cleanliness laws properly, these societies of Jews and Gentiles would drift further and further apart. So this psychological divide, this hatred, this enmity, this hostility is fueled by these objective differences in verses 11 and 12. But in verse 13, we see the cross of Christ drawing people near. Look at verse 13 with me. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice two things. That it's somehow by being connected with in Christ, that this reconciliation is occurring. And then second, this reconciliation is occurring by the blood of Christ. But why these two things? Why is it in Christ, and why is it by the blood of Christ? Well, Paul begins to answer that question in verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So this both into one is that somehow Paul is saying that this Jew and this Gentile people group, everything that's been divided in verses 11 through 12, somehow they're both coming into one. And that's because there's this, this hostility, this dividing wall of hostility is coming down. Read in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So here it is. Like Christ's sacrificial death, when he dies on the cross and he transforms the old covenant. That now we live under the new covenant. We don't keep the cleanliness laws, right? The Old Testament applies to us differently. So all those barriers in verses 11 through 12 are now nullified. Both of these culminate at the end of verse 15. Paul writes that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And so here this real peace occurs when these two people, so radically divided by real and perceived hostilities, are brought together in one new man. What Christ does is he creates, he brings into existence something that doesn't happen before. He brings into existence one new man, a man that didn't exist before. It's because the man comes into existence in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing is he's, he's dissolving this Jewish identity. He's dissolving this Gentile identity and he's creating one new identity, our identity in Christ. And that's how he's able to bring the man together. No longer does it matter if there's Jew or Gentile. What matters is, are you in Christ? So the summer after my uh, my junior year of high school, I interned with a missions organization in Mexico. And I was like one of the youngest guys there. So I was 16 at the time. And then there was my boss, Eric. He was like a 35-year-old white guy from the U.S., but he was now living in Mexico and he had a wife and, like, four kids. And then 
there's my friend Adich, and Adich was like this pot-bellied 35-year-old guy who didn't speak a lick of English. There was Ignacio, we called him Nacho, and uh, yeah, Nacho was about 40 or 45 years old. He was our translator of the group, and uh, he had a little daughter, and we had nothing in common, right? Like, you just throw us all into a car and like, what do we have in common? Well, fast forward now, I still think about those men every day. I still pray for them. It's because even all these like minor differences, like who cares if they didn't like baseball or not? Like who cares about these age or these ethnic differences? Like what matters is that we are in Christ and we had one goal together, to preach the gospel of Christ to the nations. And that's what brought us together. This is what makes sense when Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point is that all these markers that would normally segregate and divide and separate and cause rise for hostility are now done away with because the identification marker that really matters is the virtue of the relationship of being in Christ. This reconciliation of peace that we have with other people is linked with the peace that we have with God. It has the same grounding, right? Look with me at verse 16. And you might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The blood of Christ is what purchased our communal peace. The blood of Christ is what purchases our peace to the Father together. Guys, this is the gospel. This is the wondrous gospel of peace. Like, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace that we have with God is something that spills out into our community, that spills out into the church and transforms all of our, all of our relationships. It's by being in Christ. It's by having that relationship with him by repenting of our sin and turning to faith in Christ. This is why the gospel has to be the centerpiece of every message, because the gospel is what drives the Christian life. The gospel is what drives the Christian faith. The gospel is what drives peace. So this discussion about peace so far has kind of talked about the cessation of hostility, but that's only one side of it. Because after the cessation of hostility, it moves forward into like a harmony or into a flourishing. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now, this communal peace that we have with each other begins to have some real-life implications. It means that we're growing all together, that we are to become this temple in the Lord. And Paul begins to flesh some of those out in Ephesians chapter 4. So just flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 1, 
Paul's urging Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they've received. And that means, in verse 3, that if they're to walk worthy, they must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like Paul's reflecting back on the unity that Christ purchased in chapter 2, and he's urging us forward to that. Because if this reality, if this unity is a reality, then we have to act in accordance with that reality. So here are some thoughts about maintaining peace in the body. The first would be actively killing any hostility that's residing within you. Like, you might have it masquerading in you about, like, just stewing over it or, like, going to some other brother to, like, get some sort of wisdom. I mean, like, not to say that that's not a problem, but just, like, check your heart to make sure you're not trying to spread someone's sin out over the place. And, like, if there actually is something, like, if there is cause for a conversation, then Jesus has prescribed the methodology that we should employ. Right? Like, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, it's like, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Right? That's like an imperative. The point is to maintain that unity. Like, don't allow it to just simmer and sit under the surface. Like, has Christ not bought peace? Then try to bring about peace. Sometimes you get to that, brother, going to have to forgive. Forgiveness is costly. It's not easy. It's not just a, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. Because sometimes people grievously wrong you. But the question is, if God in Christ is willing to reconcile you, you the rebellious sinner, and all of your rebellion to him, then should we not also do the same? Sometimes a brother might come to you. Maybe you might be in the wrong. And if he does come to you, deal with him with grace and humility. Why? Because we preach the gospel of peace. We're bringing peace in the body. It might be sort of ironic, but we have to fight for peace. We have to arm ourselves with this truth of who Christ is and what he's done and bend our hearts towards moving towards peace. That Christ has covered that sin. That we are one body. And more than that, Paul's in chapter 4, he's going to move forward how this peace is going to move into a positive flourishing of this relationship. Like in verses 11 through 16, Paul is going to talk about how the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers equip all the saints for growing and building each other up. The point is that now that we are in one body, that we've been gifted by the Spirit with different spiritual gifts, now they must be employed together for one mission, for the maturing of the saints. So if you have the gift of serving, serve. If you have the gift of evangelizing, evangelize. These gifts are motivated by and end in the peace and the unity that is purchased in the body of Christ. Guys, this is no small task. Like what I'm asking, what Paul is commanding us to do to like forgive those who've sinned against us and to move forward in unity and to strive day in and day out, that's no small task. So what I want to do right now is to 
keep moving forward, but to broaden out a little bit and to see how the peace that we are called to in the church fits within God's overall plan in the world. Because this peace that we have is just one part. It's just one part of God's plan for peace in the cosmos. We've come to our third dimension now of peace in the cosmos. Now, when Paul uses the word peace in the New Testament, he sometimes uses it in a little bit broader than the two different categories that we've talked about. Remember, Paul is a Jew, so, and he is thoroughly immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. So when he says the, the Greek word peace, irene, he's looking back to the Old Testament, and he has this Old Testament understanding of peace, of shalom there. And we can tell that this category of Old Testament peace is present in Paul's thought because Paul uses the Greek word peace, irene, in a way similar to how one would expect the Old Testament use of peace to be used. So, for example, the Old Testament word is shalom, and you can kind of use it as a greeting, like, shalom, I'm Jacob, or you can use it as like a farewell, like, shalom, have a great day, see you later. And that's not common for the Greek word irene to be used in that way. But Paul, if you'll notice, will use that in his letters. Like, we're in Ephesians right now, so just, just turn to the beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, verse 2. Grace to you, and what? And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, just like at the end, it's like a farewell. You don't have to turn there. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. So I think it's pretty clear then from Paul's usages of peace, that when Paul says the word peace, he's, he's looking back on this Old Testament category. And the Old Testament understanding of shalom was not just a lack of hostility. It was like a sense of wholeness, like a sense of completeness. Like there was shalom in the garden. Like man and God worked together. They walked, sorry, they walked together and man worked the garden and kept it. But the shalom of the garden was broken with the advent of sin. Because the relationship between man and God was severed and man was cast out. Now, cursed is the ground. Like that produces thorns and thistles. And like, cursed is the precious marriage relationship because man and wife will struggle over the headship role. Like, you know this. Like, you can see in the world. Like, there is injustice. There is poverty. There is suffering. This is not like the garden. This is not shalom. This is not how it's supposed to be. And all of creation knows it. Because all of creation is eagerly waiting. It's eagerly longing, Paul will say in Romans 8, for the restoration of shalom. Like, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. We're waiting for the Prince of Peace. We're waiting for him to bring about peace in the world. But, in some strange sense, as much as we're waiting for it, some of it's already happened. The Prince of Peace has already come. He's already begun his kingdom plan. He's already reconciled the world. If we're going to talk about peace, 
we have to talk about reconciliation. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses eighteen and nineteen. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So notice how this reconciliation occurs. This reconciliation occurs not counting their trespasses against them. Somehow, the cross of Christ is at work again. Somehow, Jesus is bringing about shalom. And look about... Look at this restored relationship. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to whom? To himself. That shalom that was lost between the loving Father is now being brought together. That God's people are being brought back to the arms of a loving Father. And notice who's being reconciled. In verse 19, that is, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling what? The world at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? This, this, Paul's selection of the word world is drawing our attention back to verse 17, to this new creation language, this cosmic overhaul. And notice where else we saw this. In Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that Christ creates one new man. See, God's reconciling man, but he's also reconciling the world. There's a cosmic rehaul that begins with the people of God and flows out to all of creation. God's reconciling the cosmos. Because reconciliation terminates in peace. It terminates in the universal, blood-bought, relational peace. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And he cries, mine, over the cosmos. Because Christ takes the sorrow. He takes the pain. He takes the suffering. And it's being done away with. As we're speaking, the world is being remade. This is the grand vision of the gospel that we preach. This is a gospel that changes everything. This gives hope, and this ends in victory for the Creator God and for all of creation. And if God is trying to redeem and reconcile the entire cosmos, then what are you doing holding hostility against your brother? What are you doing standing in the plan of God but harboring bitterness against your brother or sister in Christ. Because if it's true that God is reconciling the world to himself, and it is, and if it's true that we are partners with God in the plan of reconciliation, and we are, then we have to pursue peace 
in the body of Christ. We have to look past our brother's offenses, and we have to build up the body of Christ. So the next time when you're struggling and you see these headlines that are dominating you with inner conflict and anxiety, remember God's remaking the world. God's reconciling his church. He's bringing the church together. And individually, we can have the inner peace. And all this is because of the gospel and the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Church, let's pursue peace. You close with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we're grateful for sending your Son, Christ Jesus, into the world to us, to rebellious and insolent sinners, to bring about peace, peace with you and peace with us. God, I pray that this word seeks deep into our heart, that we go out of here today seeking peace in ourselves, peace at Timberlake, and peace in the cosmos, God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.